Thanks for joining the Chasing the Consumer podcast today. I have a very special guest speaker that has joined us, Ruben Carranza, who currently serves as the CEO at Kate Somerville. I first came to know Ruben when my business partner, Marcy Stamus, and I were retained on a search with Unilever Prestige for Kate Somerville. Within the first few moments of meeting Ruben, we knew he was the one. Not only does Ruben bring an incredible track record and history of staying in front of the consumer, he also has played a strategic role in turning around companies, driving diverse workforces, and last but not least, fostering culture that empowers the leaders within these various brands and organizations to stay at the forefront of consumer behavior. Ruben, thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Annabelle. Thank you for inviting me. Well, we are so thrilled. And if you don't mind, I'd love for you to provide an overview of your background to everyone today that perhaps doesn't have the doesn't know you. Um, that would be great. <laughs> I'd be happy to. I, I didn't know we were going to bore people right from the beginning, Annabelle. <laughs> um, no, you know, I um, I've spent thirty years in the consumer products business right out of college, um, and the first half of my career was in traditional CPG with Procter and Gamble. So I spent twenty four years there. Um, and, you know, kind of worked my way up through that organization and um, was doing both the, cons you know, traditional mass market um, um, work with brands. And then um, P&G acquired a company called Wella Professionals. And uh, I was working in the beauty side of our portfolio on the consumer side uh, and was given the opportunity to move to the professional side and uh, was uh, the managing director for Wella uh, North America, and then became the managing CEO for North America, Wella, Clairol, uh, and then we did an acquisition of, um, of a brand called, um, um, uh, oh, listen, we did an acquisition of another brand, I'm getting all crazy on this, um, but I ended up spending the last eight years of my career as the CEO of Wella North America, um, and um, then I decided that I was really kind of, I was yearning to be an entrepreneur, and so I left P&G and joined Luxury Brand Partners um, and was the founding president and launched R&Co, which, which was the second brand um, that LBP had launched out of uh, after they had done Orbe Hair Care. Kind of grew that brand. Um, we had a couple of exits of other businesses um, that we sold, and I used that as an opportunity to, we had gotten you know, R&Co to scale, um, profitable, um, kind of growing in terms of its market share. And uh, so I thought I was going to retire and do some consulting. And um, I ended up be spending time with a, just a, a small hair care brand called Olaplex. Uh, the founders asked me to be the president of Olaplex and uh, scaled that business, uh, doubled that business, helped get it to the point where it was sold. Uh, and that was really right about the time that we met. And uh, with this amazing opportunity, I had been wanting to um, and spending more time in the skincare part of the business. And uh, this was an incredible opportunity that you uh, and Marcy were able to bring me um, bring me into with uh, Kate Somerville Skincare. So I've been here for about a year and a half. In the last year and a half since you've been there, you've been able to totally reinvigorate the brand, reinvigorate Kate as, and position Kate Somerville as one of the top trending brands in retail and digital from an earned media point. In fact, I think you guys are what, top 10 now and at Tribe Dynamics? What would you? <laughs> not quite not quite top 10, but we've grown 30, 30, place, 30, point, 30 uh, positions in the rankings. 
Which is incredible. And and what would you attribute that to? Just being able to just step in and have so many key wins in such a short time period. You know, that's a that's a great question, Annabelle. I think, you know, as we were going through the due diligence um, together for the opportunity, for me, there were a number of things that stood out. One of them was an incredible product. I mean, the, the products do what they say they're going to do um, and really um, kind of at the top end in terms of delivering results without any downtime. So that was one of the big factors. The second was just an incredibly passionate and visionary founder. Um, Kate was very involved in the business, wanted to and continued to be involved. Um, and so there was an, there was a, I would say there was an, there was a heart to heart connection between Kate in the first five minutes that we had a conversation. So that was really important. Uh, but then the, so those things were, you know, part of the business. Um, I would say that as I came in, I did what I've tended to do in most of the businesses that I join. Um, and it's focus on where are the strengths, where are the opportunities, build a strong team with the right skills and capabilities, um, and then really set the stage, right? What are we going to focus on? And I think to be successful as a leader of an organization, you also have to be able to declare, what are we gonna stop doing? Because in many instances, and this was certainly the case with Kate's business, with Kate Somerville, it wasn't that there wasn't a lot of activity going on. The problem was there was too much activity going on and we weren't focusing on some of the big you know, the big, the big focus areas that would move the needle. And one of those single biggest focus areas was awareness. The brand had dropped to zero measured awareness. Um, and when you have a great product, a great founder, and you're not talking about that product, um, that's where I think the, the Kate Somerville business had been impacted. So it was really a focus on, on, on those elements. I've actually never heard anyone say that that it was a shift away from focusing on too much. And I think that's really interesting and it, and it speaks volumes, right? Really fine tuning that strategy to make sure it's more linear, more focused, um, and, and certainly it's paid off Ruben. Um, and as you know, I just had Michael McNeil on the podcast last week. And as you know, he's the head marketer at Huda Beauty. And we were talking about the trends around COVID and how that's really amplified consumer behavior. And for, for him, he felt like it really pushed the consumer to where the consumer was headed with regards to leaning into skincare, leaning into clean, natural, you name it. And I'm curious, have you been seeing these trends as well? And more importantly, as a medical esthetician brand, do you feel the consumer starting to lean back into brands that are certainly as clean as possible, but also incredibly powerful and efficacious in the results that they deliver? Yeah, um, you know, that's, I, I loved hearing um, Michael um, speak about, about the, you know, this particular topic as well. And, and what I would say is we have, you know, we, we've definitely seen a shift in the positive related to skincare. Skincare was already um, having its moment in the sun before COVID. But I think what we've seen with, with, um, with our business and what we've seen with the category in general is what, what has happened is the consumer has become much more um, focused around what is what are the products I'm using, right? So are they clean? Are they are they efficacious, etc.? What's the credibility behind the product that I'm looking at, and is it delivering what I'm expecting it to do? And so for us, being a you know a clinically based formulated brand that promises you know um, it promises results. Um, 
that has played right into kind of our brand promise. Um, and what we're seeing is consumers um, are doing what I call less cherry picking. Um, they're not as promiscuous when they're looking at brands. What they're trying to do is get what are those mainstay brands that are going to deliver what they're promising with the value equation that they're sign that you're signing up for. Um, and, um, you know, on the, for us on the influencer side, you know, having people who not only can speak to the brand, um, but can speak to it authentically has been one of the big success elements for us, particularly in COVID, because I think people are looking to experts, both people like Kate, but also influencers who have a credibility about them. Um, and that's carrying a lot of weight. And just to kind of touch on, on, on the influencer thing, because I think that's really interesting you said that. What kind of influencers do you feel like you guys are leaning into? Are they micro? Are they macro? Is it a mix of both? I mean, who are the people that really understand and resonate with the Kingsville brand? Great question. And about, you know, what we found, we already had um, a fairly diverse group of influencers, both macro and micro, that were clients of the clinic in, uh, on, in, on Melrose uh, Place in L.A., um, who were coming into the clinic, were getting services, medical services, as well as aesthetic services, um, but had never, we've, we had never really brought them into the fold in terms of actually being part of the conversation, right? And so what I would say is we, we have, we curated um, a roster of influencers. They were, there's some micro, they're both micro and, you know, some big name uh, influencers. Um, but we, we, what I call, when I say curated them, it's because we wanted influencers who really believed in their heart and with their skin results about with the brand. And so we did something pretty unique. We did uh, a documentary on Kate, um, our founder, and the brand and how she started the brand. And we debuted it at Sundance Film Festival in January. Um, and we had over a dozen influencers from around the US and Canada that we invited to spend the weekend at Sundance with Kate, um, not only to be part of the kind of debut of the, of the, um, of the uh, uh, documentary, but also to spend time with Kate. That And that was because our brand and Kate have always been about genuine connection. And so what that unleashed for us was these, you know, these influencers who have very large audiences, but who could, who speak to the brand as if they are part of the family, because they really do feel like they're part of the family. That's how we've grown uh, and continue to grow off of that. And particularly in the COVID environment, right? So we did that in January. We were starting to see massive acceleration. COVID hits. Everything's going crazy. And I think, you know, there's been many instances this year where a lot of the conversations we're having with some of our influencers and a very diverse group of influencers is not even having conversations with them about product. It's just talking to them about how it's going. You know, how do we support them? Um, because I think, you know, the minute you get to a point where you're, where an influencer feels like you're only talking to them to push a product, then it becomes a very different relationship. And for us, we've really tried to maintain that that connection and that heart connection as well as the professional connection. And so that's kind of what we did that was different and what we'll continue to do. It's phenomenal that you do that because it reminds me of that relationship that you would just have with your esthetician in general, right? It right. is a very heart to heart relationship, but then there's also this passion for whatever products you're learning about or whatever new techniques you're learning about. And, and I think that that is tried and true, Kate, at the end of the day. Right. 
And so in addition to Kate Somerville, you've had such an amazing track record of reinvigorating brands and in building diverse workforces and in staying ahead of the consumer. Um, And I think it was really evident as well during your time at Wella with Procter & Gamble. What do you feel are some of the key leadership skills and capabilities that have played a role in developing and, and really kind of bringing this success to fruition for you time and time again? Oh, thank you, Annabelle. You know, it's it's funny. You wake up one day and you're like, my God, I've been in this business. I've been in the business world 20, 25 years, you know, heading into 30 years. It goes by in a, in a blink. But there's been some, there's been, you know, I was fortunate in the early part of my career to work for some amazing managers who had, who became mentors. And I think there was a lot of gleaning you know, insights from those individuals around how to create, you know, not only strong businesses, but also really strong organizations. And I think for me, there's been just a few things that have always been part of my formula, right? And I can say it and someone, you know, but it's how you make it come to life that makes it really important. The first thing I would say is um, you've got to be close to the organization and you've got to be close to the consumer, both the consumer buying your product or the customers that are buying your product to then get them to the end consumer. So I typically try to spend at least half of my um, business agenda time in the field, either with customers or with salespeople or with people in the production side, because that's where you get the really reallys related to where are the opportunities and where are the challenges, right? I think the second piece is you surround yourself with amazing people. And I know people talk about that, but it, it takes courage to have a leadership team that you know is just better than you, right? And and that's honestly how I've always <laughs> approached it. You know, I may not be the brightest bulb in the chandelier, but I know the kind of talent I need in my CMO or my CFO or the or whoever's running supply chain or who's leading my selling organization. And so you you build a team of really talented individuals who bring a ton to the table. And then you get out of their way. And I think as a leader, the hardest thing when you're a micromanager, when you're an A-type personality, like I view myself as, the hardest thing I had to learn when I, the first time I became a manager and I wasn't actually a single contributor was how, how do I inspire, direct, clear the pathway for the people who have to go do the job and deliver the business when you're the one used to doing it yourself, right? And I think as I've continued to grow in terms of managing organizations, and then now you bring really talented people into the fold, one of the other stumbling blocks I've seen is sometimes you don't, you bring these, you know, you bring these, these uh, what I call these, these uh, blue ribbon thoroughbred um, um, people, and then you try to micromanage them. So getting out of their way is an incredibly important element to it. And I think it goes back to one of those things that I talked about before is I think as a CEO, your job is to clarify, you know, to have to have a, an expect to clarify what the potential of the business is, even if it's a little daunting and stretching, identify what the focus areas are that we want that you that we believe can deliver today, because it may be different next year. And then importantly, calling out what do you what do you tell the organization to stop doing? And once you can do those things, then it is you've got a team that's ready to go, you know, run through walls and climb uh, mountains to deliver against it. Because I, I always have believed, I always believe that people want to do a great job, right? Um, and if you can give them the direction, 
give them the clarity, get things out of their way, and then give them permission to say no to certain things, then you get people who are really just firing on all cylinders. And I, I, I just, I can't thank you enough for that insight. So many leaders have incredible talent and they definitely seem to just stand in their way and, and being able to hire the right people and, and let them have the right runway to success and the freedom to success, I think is just so important. And, and I love hearing that that's been a key component of, of what you find you know, being the most successful part of, of your leadership and career as, as a leader of businesses. Ruben, when you think about the future of beauty, what does that look like you? And, and where are we headed when you think about the consumer in 2021 and beyond? <laughs> I would be, uh, I would be a, a, you know, a very, very happy person if I knew the answer to that as well. I think we're all trying to figure that out, um, Annabelle. Here's what I would, I would say, though, um, and I think it's so appropriate with the kind of the theme of the um, podcast that you're doing, Chasing the Consumer. The consumer will always tell you what they want and what they don't want. You have to be open enough and courageous enough to hear them, right? Um, and I also would say that at least in the beauty space, um, it's, 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 it's continuing to evolve and it will continue to evolve. And, and that's across all aspects of it, right? So when you talk about, um, you know, just in the context of skincare for a minute, you think about all of the dynamics that have happened over the course of the last five years related to ingredients, not only safe ingredients, but clean ingredients, natural ingredients, organic ingredients, or high-performing formulations as well. There's the consumer is, is making a lot of choices and decisions, and they're, um, they're telling you kind of what they look for and what they want. I think you're seeing a lot of channel blurring. I think this year in particular, COVID forced not only traditional brick and mortar retailers and prestige retailers versus mass retailers, but also online merchants, right? To really reevaluate what's the value proposition that you're bringing and how do you create experiences online? What will those experiences look like in brick and mortar locations once people can safely go back into stores and you have testers and those kinds of things? It's going to be a different dynamic once we get out of this COVID environment um, and there will be an evolution, right? It's not going to be the way we used to do it before. So I think I say that because change and evolution will continue to be part of the beauty, the future of beauty and the future of, of the consumer dynamic with beauty. I do also think, though, that there's some other elements that are really important that I'm really excited about. I think um, brands, consumers are looking forward, particularly the younger consumers are driving this too. They're looking not, they're not just looking for what's the efficacy, they're really looking for what's the soul connection I can make to that brand, right? Founders, founder stories, brand stories, having an impact beyond just the immediate and into the community and into the environment is continuing to be and will continue to accelerate, I think, is one of those elements that is going to make or break brands in the future. And so that soulful connection is what I call it, is becoming even more louder and powerful and strong. Um, and I think that's going to only accelerate. I also think that you're going to continue to see, um, you know, consumers making decisions and choices related to uh, brands, and founders that represent who they are um, and who take a stand. 
And that can be a really powerful thing. You know, in the Unilever prestige world, I look to, you know, a brand that is part of the Unilever per portfolio. That's a, that's a, I call her a sister, a sister brand, but she's not part of the prestige. It's uh, Ben and Jerry's. Ben and Jerry's to me is one of those examples of a brand who has been unashamedly and unabashedly about, um, who they are and, you know, does things that pushes the envelope uh, that some brands would be very scared about, um, but they take a stand, right? Um, and I say that because um, it's one of the things kind of coming back full circle that really, you know, having been in a traditional consumer products business with P&G and then doing independent and entrepreneurial and startup and scale up, the reason I came back to a business that was kind of under the umbrella of a big corporate company like Unilever, but really allows us to run independently was because of examples like Ben and Jerry's, right? This is a company that says we want the brand and the brand DNA and the brand founder to have their own voice. And we're going to allow them the liberty, you know, the flexibility to be who they are before they joined us. Um, and I think consumers are going to reward, reward brands that are able to maintain that and kind of accelerate that um, because they want that soulful connection. So that's my that's my point of view. I think as I as I think about that, um, Annabelle. And those are the brands that really stand the test of time with the consumer, right? They can stand the disruptors that come to the market. They maintain their you know consumer you know engagement, and I think that that's really important. And Unilever for sure has done such a phenomenal job of that. And, and I think there's no question that you were absolutely perfect for Kate and, and for what you guys have been able to continue to build upon and do together. And wow. then just one last fun question, Ruben. Sure. Any products that we need to have in our checkout carts online with Kate Somerville? <laughs> that is a great question, Annabelle. Thank you for asking. Um, you know, Kate talks about the three... Um, the five daily dues or her core three, right? You want to exfoliate, you want to moisturize, you want to hydrate, um, you want to be able to also um, have some protection on your skin and and then have, you know, treatments with particular areas of, of your skin. So what I would say is, you know, we have, we have a juggernaut in our franchise called Exfolicate. <clears throat> it, was, it was the first product Kate created um, to really use natural ingredients um, to exfoliate, the, you know, the skin. Um, so exfoliate, I would say, is a must-have. Um, hydration, we have something that, that was kind of a different delivery. So how do you take oxygen facials that we do in a clinic and have a consumer allow... Uh, create something that a consumer can do at home. So our uh, dermal quench is a unique way that uh, we launched that God, eight years ago. And it's still one of the number one products and it's to, to really penetrate the derma and hydrate. Um, and then, um, so those two are the two right now, but we have a huge innovation that we're launching in the first quarter of next year. So stay tuned because we've got ways to get, uh, to take our four, our four most requested clinical services, medical services, and we've got uh, a way that you're going to be able to do those at home. I cannot wait because I need all the products these days with two kids at home. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, Ruben, we 
Thank you so, so much. We're just indebted for your time today. And I hope that, you know, everyone can learn from you. There's no question. I think that you've just been such an incredible leader and you've emboldened so many people that have had the opportunity to work for you and to work with you to just maintain this incredible track record of staying in front of the consumer. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We, We so appreciate you, Ruben. Thank you, Annabelle. I appreciate you guys too. And I love what the DHR International does. So thank you for inviting me to be a guest and I'm happy to do so anytime. Thank you, Ruben. We look forward to having you back on soon. Okay.